0: Here we go, Matthew chapter 28. And we return to the Great Commission where we ended last time, and yet we didn't end because there's so much more to cover. So, we return this morning to Christ's Great Commission given to His church. This is the church that He has saved. This is us. He's redeemed us by His blood. This is why Christ came. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead to reconcile us to God, of course. And yet, most evidently, as He came to save and redeem us, it apparently was not merely to reconcile us to Himself. It wasn't, He didn't merely come to die for us or reconcile us to God so that we can spend an eternity with Him. Of course, that's the glorious gift of being in Christ, but if that was all this was about, He could have taken us right to heaven when we came to Him, right? But He's left us here. He's left us here and He's called us with a task and a mission. He's left us with a work to do. King Jesus, as we talked about last week, has given the church marching orders, and they are these, go to all the nations and make disciples. King Jesus, He's commissioned us as His church to go to all the nations of the world, for they are His, and to make disciples, to compel them, to teach them, to baptize them, that they would be followers of Jesus Christ, our great King. So this is our call. This is our mission. to make disciples. And last week we began in looking at God's desire for the nations in verse 16. If we're going to first understand and really reckon with what what God's intentions are for the whole world, you have to understand His heart. And His heart is for the nations to worship Him all over the globe. And we saw that Jesus tipped His hand to show God's plans here God's intentions here are to always, with His kingdom, go global. This is not a private faith and kingdom, but it's an international one. And this was seen as He calls us to go to the nations, but He had us gather, represented here by the apostles. He revealed Himself on this particular mountain in the north part of Israel in Galilee. Look at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee... To the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Of course, Jesus could have directed them to Jerusalem. Later on, the church will be meeting in the temple. But he sends them north to Galilee before he ever gets to this to meet them in the very, very borders and reaches of the promised land. Why? Why did he want to make this commission from Galilee? Well, we considered it last time. Well, what do we know about Galilee? Galilee is the way out of town. This is the way out of the Promised Land. It's on the very northern reach of it. You're on the cusp of leaving the Promised Land at that point. And besides, we saw in Isaiah 9 that Galilee is called the Galilee of the nations. This is the international sign of God's kingdom. He's moving the center of His kingdom out of Jerusalem, and really out of the promised land altogether, He's bringing out to the nations, and He's tipping His hand to that, that He's going global with this mission in this kingdom as He launches it from Galilee, the Galilee of the nations. And why did God do it this way? Because He has always, we saw last time, had a heart for the nations. God wants, He desires the nations to be redeemed by His Son and to worship Him. This is His desire for them. But that task, to make disciples globally, it's daunting in its scope, isn't it? And its great breadth. I mean, it's worldwide. But that's not the only reason it's so daunting. It's also daunting because we start to look at our personal resources to try and accomplish this mission. And the more we look at ourselves, the harder this mission immediately becomes, right? In other words, how are we ever going to accomplish this? Because we are weak. And that's reflected even for us here by the disciples' own response to seeing the resurrected Jesus. Because what we see, what's so striking about it, is that they're seeing the resurrected Jesus face to face, but their response to it is mixed. It's cracked. It's faulty. Look at verse 17. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. But some doubted. So some had the right response. They bowed low. They they got low before King Jesus, but others doubted. They hesitated. We talked about they were vacillating in their faith and commitment to Christ. But is this often not what we're like, where we can be one moment so bold, and then the next moment we can be hesitant and worrying? Our Christian life, isn't it, so often marked by struggle and flip-flopping from one side to the next? And that was true even about the disciples in this moment, as they see the resurrected Jesus with their own physical eyes. But even then, they're not immune from this struggle. But where we ended this last time was to consider, even though Jesus has insights and He sees how much they struggle, He sees how vacillating they are, He doesn't wait till they get it all together. He doesn't wait till their faith has been perfected. He doesn't wait until all of their questions are answered or all the struggles are over. Even seeing their weaknesses, He commands them still to go make disciples, engage in this task. Even despite your weaknesses, He calls us to this, which gloriously means we have to depend on Him every step of the way, don't we? Well, then we looked at the directive, the actual command he gives, the directive from King Jesus. And the heart of it is that command, make disciples. Now, as we look, though, as where this command is found in verses 18 to 20, as I brought, mentioned last time in passing, that there's so much goodness in this text. There's so much here. It's, you might say, pregnant with meaning and significance, I mean, you have statements about Jesus' authority. You have this call to go, to mobilize. You have all of the nations are involved here. We're also talking about baptism, the Trinity, Bible study, obedience. There's so much here. That's why we had to do another message, right? But even with that said, there's technically speaking only one command, and it's make disciples. Our charge is not to feed the hungry. Our mission as the church is not to dig wells, to create infrastructure overseas, to provide health care. That's not our mission. Our mission is to make followers of Jesus Christ, disciples. Now, of those things I just mentioned, feeding the hungry and digging wells and all of this kind of thing, they might serve us well to help make disciples, but they are only a means to get to that end to make followers of Christ. They are not our expressed task, the command is not do good to people. The charge is make disciples. And it's that straightforward. Okay, if it's that simple, Rick, then why did he say anything else? You said there was a lot here. Why does he need to just say, make disciples, peace out, you know what you need to do? He doesn't do that. Thankfully, he gives us four what we're going to study this morning aids, four helps, four truths that surround this main command. Four helps for us that we might get at this of ourselves impossible task. Four truths to benefit us, to compliment us, to put a spring in our step, that we would go do this, make disciples. Four truths to strengthen us for making disciples. And the first truth that we find is this, we need to understand the truth of the authority we have been commissioned with to make disciples we got to see here the authority to make disciples, and it's Jesus' absolute authority. It's what's commanded us. So, we see this in verse 18. Let's consider this. Where are we at? Of course, the disciples, they're laid low, having been approached by the resurrected Christ. And as Jesus approaches them, again, despite how urgent and how clear this Great Commission's going to be, making disciples, that is. He doesn't start with that. He doesn't go right to the command. He has something else to tell us first. He's going to give some backdrop, some context, some foundation to this command, and it all has to do with His authority. Let's listen to this, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So before he gets the command, he needs to tell them something. By the way, all authority is mine. All authority has been given to me. I have absolute authority, King Jesus says, and he has absolute authority everywhere. It's comprehensive. He has the rights and the rule, the reign over all the earth, but even in heaven. There's no authority that can even come and question his. So this is astonishing. God in heaven humbled himself by coming down and taking on human flesh. He humbled himself, taking on our fleshly limitations. And then he humbled himself furthermore. We know this Philippians 1, this progression. He humbled Himself by taking on our sins, taking on the wrath that we deserve, the suffering by dying on the cross for us. Yes, He took that. But then as also Philippians 2 mentions, He then now reigns, He has been exalted. He rose from the dead and He sits at God's right hand. Why? Because He conquered every last enemy of the people of God, sin and death. What does this mean? There is then no rule, no authority, no king, no government, no mandate, no element, no spirit, no influencer, no philosopher, no politician that can come against King Jesus. He trumps them all. What that means then, everywhere you go and everywhere you look, Jesus reigns there. He has authority there. What's that authority for? Why does he tell us about this? what is this authority all about? And I think the clearest insight to that comes as we return to one of Jesus' favorite prophecies actually about Himself, and that's in Daniel chapter 7. You can turn there or just listen. We'll only be there a couple moments. But this text in Daniel 7, it shines some light on the why of Jesus' authority, the what it's for, and how we're supposed to respond to that authority. Now, as Jesus went through His ministry, as we went through the book of Matthew, recall that His favorite way to refer to Himself wasn't the Christ, the Messiah. It wasn't Savior. It wasn't God or King. But He most frequently referred to Himself as what? The Son of Man. And why? That comes from this text in Daniel 7. But it tells us something about what kind of King He is. So, in this vision that Daniel had, he sees this. And it says, this is Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him. Then note this, verse 14. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. It sounds a lot like verse 18 of Matthew 28, doesn't it? All authority has been given unto me. Well, it's talked about here in Daniel 7, 14. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. But now we ask, why, what for? And Daniel tells us. Again, verse 14 of Daniel 7. And to him was given dominion and a glory and a kingdom. Why, what for? That. So here it comes. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him worship Him, bow down to Him, acknowledge Him, confess Him, give their lives to Him. This is why He's been given all authority. So that all would bow to King Jesus. So all would worship King Jesus. He's earned this right, and He's taking it. He's the King of kings. And so He sends us out as kingdom reps, to announce this good news that this king, overall, he offers clemency now. He offers mercy now. He offers forgiveness now, who any will turn. And he's bid us go to the nations and tell them. Tell them, even when they don't have the good sense to ask for the gospel, or even as they oppose us in the gospel, I tell you to go tell them. And in this way, it's like good parents who don't just cave to whatever the child cries for or wants, but good parents are going to use their wisdom and give what's best to the child, regardless of what they're asking for. So, if your child, say, got a big splinter stuck in his foot, and he's really wailing and caterwauling all about it, and so... so, You come up and you're asking, oh, oh, let me see it. Maybe I can help that. And then they say something like, no, 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 not that. You can't even look at it. I know this very well because I was that kid. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Now, I will say as a parent, I've maybe experienced that too. And it might be tempting in that moment to say, okay, fine. Fine you have that splinter. I hope it gets infected, right? (laughs) But of course, a loving parent might think that, but they would never say that. What does a loving parent do? They intervene, despite all of their objections, despite all of the, the child's caterwauling. You intervene for the kid's good. The nations, your neighbors, your unsafe family members, they may object They may say, you can't touch that. You can't talk to me about that. You can't keep talking about your Jesus. And yet, King Jesus, by his absolute authority, intervenes and overrules for their unbelieving hard heart. He overrules and says, no, I'm king here and I commission you, my people, go give that life-giving message of mercy. Even if they say they don't want it. And so may Christ give us the wisdom to speak kindly and wisely and knowing when to speak and how to speak, especially when they're saying, oh, I don't want to hear that. Now, true, there are times you've got to wait in wisdom. There are times even you might move along. That is, we respect them That is the unbeliever. They're not little children, despite my illustration. I mean, consider even Jesus and His ministry. We saw this. He didn't persist in a town, even as they kept telling him, go away. But what Jesus did, he did speak the truth. And he's commissioned us, and we don't need to wait for an invitation in. Jesus already invited you or demands that you go in with his truth. He's already called us into every nation, every people, every individual. Why? Because he has authority over them all. So they might put up a no soliciting sign on the door of their heart. Well, King Jesus says, solicit the gospel. Preach the authoritative, unchanging, true good news they need so desperately. And like you and me, in their unbelief, they just can't see it. The good news that Jesus died for our sins. He was buried and he rose from the dead so who's going to tell? Who are you going to tell this good news to? Next, if we're going to fulfill this commission to make disciples, it also means we got to go. We have to mobilize. we got to take into account the place where disciples are supposed to be made by this command. And it means we go to the nations. That's where we got to go. And the impetus for this command is captured in what appears to be that first command of His commission, go therefore. Let's read it once more. Now we turn to verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, Jesus commands us. Now, I made a big deal last week, and we already alluded to it this week, that the main or only real command in this whole commission is make disciples. But if you read your English Bible... You can actually count two commands here. Go, that's the first one, and then make disciples. So, Rick, why did you talk about then one command? Well, because technically, as Matthew wrote this down in Greek, there is only one command, and it's not go, but the command is make disciples. Such that then I've heard some preachers wax eloquent here saying something like, yes, this should not be translated, go and make disciples. But as you are going, make disciples such that the implication seems to be from some, you don't even really need to go anywhere. You just go through your daily life and make disciples as you have opportunity. You know, as you're going along in life, make disciples along the way. Well, is that right? Is it how it should be understood? In short, no, it's not. That's not what's intended here, at least not fully or exactly. Now, let me clarify. The heart or perspective that says, as one goes about their lives, we should be looking to speak about Christ to whomever's around us, to evangelize, to disciple any around us, that's right on. That's perfect. And that gets at the heart of what this is getting at. But that's not it. That is, we have missed it if we try and de-emphasize this very command to go by trying, having this grammatical something explanation. But oh, Rick... You said the command's not to go. What do you the command's to make disciples? So what do you mean? I thought go wasn't a command. Okay. Getting technical for a moment then. Technically speaking, go could be translated going in other contexts, but not this one. And why not? Well, when this word going appears like this, linked so closely to a command and imperative like make disciples, Everyone understands, then, these two things must go together. You can't have one without the other. So, yes, Jesus is mainly commanding, go make disciples, but He expects. More than that, He bids you, you got to go to go do it, you see. They're so linked, going and making disciples, you can't do one without the other. Such that, what's the point? Your English translations you've been reading your whole life have gotten the sense perfectly right when it translates it in English as two commands, because that's what the Greek's getting at here. You got to go, therefore, and make disciples. That's how it's meant. You got to go so you can make disciples. And so, brothers and sisters, as comfortable as we might be in these cushy chairs and air-conditioned walls surrounded by old friends, Jesus commands us to go. We cannot fulfill this charge. We cannot obey this command if we all stay. We got to go. We have to move. We have to infiltrate the borders of other lands. We got to leave our homes. We got to leave what's familiar. We got to leave our comforts if we're going to go and be able to make disciples of all nations. You can't do that just sitting right here. So it's been helpfully said as we collectively as a church take on this command, going and making disciples, that there are two roles that we might play, and both are essential. And they are the role of goer and sender. So, will you be a goer or will you be a sender? But you got to be something if you're going to go and make disciples. But first, just that question, will you yourself go? Will you be a goer? Someone's got to go. Romans 10.14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach, he goes on, unless they've been sent? Well, you've been sent. He said, go. If the nations will be saved, if they will praise and worship Jesus Christ, someone's got to go and tell them about it. And he's commanded us to go. So at this moment then, maybe over this Lord's Day, I want you to pause, I want you to reflect, I want you to pray, and ask the Lord Jesus this question, why not I? Why shouldn't you go? Why can't I go tell them? Now, not everyone can. Nor is everyone, nor should everyone go. Many should stay. But if you do stay, understand you are staying to send, as we use the expression to hold the line for our co-laborers that have gone off in the field. We need senders. In other words, if you stay behind, you have to be engaged in the task. This command isn't. Oh, you know the pastors, the missionaries, they'll get worried about making disciples for the nations. I'm just going to do my little personal Christian thing over here, and I think we can all agree, because that's hard enough as it is. But that's not the command. We are to be active, engaged in going and or sending. That means supporting our gospel partners, or we call them co-laborers in those foreign lands. And so what does that look like to be a sender? How can we send? I'm going to give you three things. It's simple. You understand these. First, got to give financially. We heard it last week from our co-laborers who are in Ireland. They need financial support. They need tangible dollars so they can actually move and locate to the church they want to be near and minister to. They can't do that without money. That's just as straightforward as I can say it. And that's just one opportunity. There are many others from the Tula Church building or whether it's the Ecclesia Africa Pastor Discipleship Program, there's so many ways that your dollars just so directly can help fulfill this command of making disciples in the nations, of helping the dollars go. you got to give. Two, you must pray. We need God to work supernaturally in the hearts of those who hear. And our co-laborers need those prayers too. So pray for the Roma people. That the Bjerks have been ministering to in Croatia. Pray for God's work in the hearts of many in the Middle East who are being discipled through different courses by our co laborers in Jordan. Or pray for the pastors in El Salvador being trained and equipped by Jim Dowdy. And two, don't neglect the actual command from King Jesus to pray this. Remember Matthew 9, verse 38? Jesus commands us and He says, Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So you need to pray. Pray that God would send out more laborers even from GBC. Pray that it might be you. Commit to give, commit to pray, commit to encourage. Encourage our missionaries in those foreign lands. And if you're thinking, well, I don't even know what to encourage them about. They're so much spiritually stronger than I am, and so forth. Well, think about this. Many of the reasons you might not be inclined to go are probably reasons they're so tempted to be discouraged on the field. The work's really hard over there. The church they're in is probably not so healthy. It's probably also why they're there. They're separated from their family. Extended, but sometimes even close family, they hardly see them. So encourage them. If you still have questions, reach out to our dear sister here in the front row, Marie, heads up the missions encouragement team. She helps us try and connect and hold the line for those missionaries. She will have scores of ideas on how that you might join that effort. But that's part of us being obedient and holding the line and sending. This is our command, church, it's not an option. It's not when we can get to it. That's why he left us here, to go and make disciples. And to do it, we must be among the nations, and that means we got to go to them. So will you? Will you go? Or how can you send in support? May God be gracious to us for the sake of Christ's name among the nations. He is too great a Savior to be praised only by us. Thus far, we've seen the authority to make disciples, and we've seen where we should be making them. We've got to go to all the nations. But now Jesus describes for us precisely how we make a disciple. The way to make disciples. And making disciples comes in two steps or phases. And they can be identified as we keep reading, so let's listen. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's it. Did you catch it? Did you catch the two parts of disciple-making there? It's these two participles or gerunds or language most of us all understand, the I-N-G words here, okay? The ing words. So, with that in mind, look at it again. Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What are the two phases of disciple-making? Baptizing and teaching. That's it. That's how you make a lifelong disciple. You dunk them and you teach them. And it's fitting to frame these as different steps because baptism is really that first step. It's what marks the beginning of your Christian faith. It's what marks you out publicly as a disciple of Jesus. As we survey the book of Acts, for example, in that first Christian sermon, we call it, where Peter's preaching for the temple stairs, we hear the gospel call to repent, and he says, "'Be baptized, every one of you,' Acts 2.38." And then in response to that call, we read this, Acts 2.41, So those who have received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. The thrust of this commission, if you've believed in Jesus to save you, then you've got to be baptized in obedience to your Lord. He commands you. This is how you side with him. this is how you show faith with him. You get immersed in the water to align with his death, and you come out of the water to align with his resurrection, that you were a new creature. that he's done that by faith, and we show it by this act. Because it really is. It's our public declaration of faith in Jesus. Because you see baptism in that way, it's a theological statement to the world. It's a doctrinal confession. Look at this, even the way Jesus bids us. You're to be baptized, and then he says this going on in verse 19, the latter half there. You're to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's a confession. That's a theological affirmation. And notice first, it's not in the names, but in the singular name, the one name of God, the God who exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This confession scripts for us, probably in the clearest singular verse, the Trinity. That God is one, but He exists in three persons. It's all there right in this baptism confession. So as you're being baptized, you're saying to the world, I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the one God, the Lord Jesus, who saved me from my sins and death and has died for me and has rose for me. He's coming back for me. That's the glorious confession in our baptism. And so then you got to turn and just ask, have you been obedient in baptism? Since you have professed faith, have you exampled that by being baptized? That's what Christ calls you to. Or have you thought, you know, baptism, it's kind of optional. Now, I happily confess, no one ever will be saved by baptism. But that doesn't mean it's negotiable either. King Jesus commands you to be baptized, are you going to do it? If you need to, if you have not, or if you have questions, talk to me after service. Talk to any one of the elders. We'd love to clarify this for you. Now, baptism starts the Christian life, but the next aspect, teaching, governs the whole rest of it until we get to glory. You see then that discipleship is for the long haul. You get baptized once, but then your teaching and training that you might obey Jesus your entire life. But note that this aspect, teaching, is an essential aspect of the Great Commission. It's essential to our mission's task. We have not fulfilled the Great Commission even when someone professes faith in Jesus. You've not fulfilled the Great Commission if someone makes a decision for Christ. You've not fulfilled the Great Commission if someone comes forward in baptism. No. That's only part of the task, you see. It's essential, essential to disciple, to train up these recent converts that might obey Jesus, follow Jesus, live like Jesus. Without that, whatever you're doing in mission, you're not targeting this command that Jesus has actually commanded us to do, to make disciples. That's why in missions, in our own church, we've strategically targeted the training of indigenous pastors, pastors that already know the language, they already know the culture, because they're from that culture, and they're already pastoring. But so many of them have little idea, if any, of how to study the Scripture, to understand the Scripture, to understand good theology, and how to then shepherd their people in the Scriptures and toward Christ. See, and we're thankful for this, particularly the last generation of missionaries. They blazed trails all over the world, say especially in South America and Africa as one example. But they often preached and left, and they left all of these baby Christians or near Christians to fend for themselves, including who would then be elected to be their new pastors. See, many of these places, like South America and Africa, just as one example, the issue is not that they don't have pastors. They have people they've elected to be their pastors, It's just their pastors have never been taught God's Word themselves. They've never been discipled. They've never been led biblically or been able to then shepherd faithfully. And so what we can do in some of these opportunities, we're targeting, training those biblically hungry pastors who are already in place, like, for example, in Kenya and Mexico City and in the Middle East. Because then you see your investment or our mission's investment just so greatly multiplies. It's not just sending one, you're sending one to train many others who are already training and discipling. Well, let's get them discipling and training by the Word of God and the gospel of Christ. That's essential to the Great Commission task, the way we make disciples. But finally then, we need to understand the assurance that we can have to make disciples. And the assurance we have is this, is that Jesus promises and says, I'm with you. This is the assurance we need to make disciples of all nations, the reassurance that Christ is with us every step of the way. And we need such reassurances because, as we've noted, this task seems so impossible. It's so comprehensive, isn't it? Did you catch all of the alls in this passage we've looked at? It began there in verse 18, as Jesus notes that He has all authority given to Him, and then we are to make disciples of all the nations, and we are to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded us. It's huge in scope, isn't it? In breadth, and also in the very detail, it's comprehensive, it's exhaustive. It's exhausting, perhaps, of our own power, certainly. And so, this is where I want to stop and interject and pray, Jesus, I think you chose the wrong guy or guys, right? (laughs) Jesus, I think you can handle this pretty well on your own. I don't think you need my help, or bringing me is not going to help, trust me. No buddy or group of bodies can accomplish this global task. We can't do it. That's the great promise here. It's not really even us doing it, is it? It's the Lord Jesus through us because we're not alone. The King goes with us. Verse 20 again, And behold, I am with you always, He promises, to the very end of the age. This is our confidence in this impossible task. Jesus is doing it through us. He will not leave us or forsake us or abandon us. He goes right with us into the battle, and not temporarily either. He will never leave us or forsake us or abandon us, not even for a moment, not even for a little break. God doesn't take sabbaticals, praise God. He promises rather to be with us always to the end of the age, really to be with us all the days, literally. The idea is like, I will be with you all the days. And the idea is then, every moment of every day until the very end of days, I will be with you. In other words, His presence with us is not intermittent. It's not disengaged or detached. It's constant. You know the difference between the two. One saying, I will be with you. And then another where you're really engaged and with somebody. Maybe you know the difference as you reassure your child that you're not going to leave them home alone. You're going to stay there for the afternoon while mommy goes off and runs all kinds of errands, right? And you're going to be there, and you can be there in the house with the child, but maybe you're on your computer, you're on your phone, maybe you're working, doing some chores, or maybe you're just dilly-dallying, wasting time. And your child's up in their room playing with their Legos, As far as you know, you haven't seen him for an hour. That's one way you can be with your child. Or you can go upstairs and you can get on the floor, engaging your child and play Legos with them, right? Spending time with them. Well, in the way that he's with us, it's much more like the latter. He's right with you every step of the way to engage, to help, to protect, to look after you, to comfort you every step of every day. And he won't leave ever! He won't leave because he changed his mind, because he got distracted and had another errand to go run out and do. He's not going to leave because he found a more faithful Christian to encourage. He won't leave because he's so disgusted with your failures. He's not going to fall asleep on the job. He's not going to become distracted with other things being dist- absorbed by his phone. And finally, this king who's with us and promises to be with us, he will never die and expire. Maybe like your grandparents have, or even your parents. He already beat that one. All of this world may leave us, but Christ and his presence never will. That's the one constant. Behold, he promises. Take note of this. I am with you always, all the days, to the end of days, all the time. And this is the truth, the great truth of Matthew's gospel that carries us from the beginning of that gospel all the way to the end to the very moment of today. God is with us. Have you thought about that? Do you remember where the gospel began? So many chapters ago. It began with that virgin, who miraculously gave birth to a son that they were going to call, on the one hand, Jesus because he would be the Savior. He would save His people from their sins, but He also, by the prophecy in Isaiah, He will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Because He came down from heaven, came to earth, took on our flesh to save and redeem. But then He doesn't just leave. By His Spirit, He stays with us every step of the way, and He charges us then with this audacious mission. How are we going to do this? I'm with you every step of the way to encourage, embolden us to be faithful, to make disciples. I could find no greater word than that of the late, great Bishop J.C. Ryle to articulate this thought. He writes, Let all true Christians lay hold on these words and keep them in mind. Christ is with us always. He's with us wherever we go. He came to be Emmanuel, God with us, when He first came into the world. He declares that He is ever Emmanuel with us when He comes to the end of His earthly ministry and is about to leave the world, He's with us daily to pardon and forgive, with us daily to sanctify and strengthen, with us daily to defend and keep, with us daily to lead and to guide, with us in sorrow and with us in joy and with us in sickness and with us in health and with us in life and with us in death and with us in time and with us in eternity. In view of this task then, in this charge we've been given, and in view of our hesitancy and our fears, brothers and sisters, in view of all of your weaknesses. He rightly then urges us and says, let us go on believing. Do not be afraid. It is everything to be a real Christian. None have such a king. None have such a priest. None have such a constant companion and such an unfailing friend as true servants of the risen Christ. What a great and glorious king we serve. That's what we've seen in Matthew's gospel. And now he's with us. Let's go and make disciples. Let's pray to him for help. Let's pray.